This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. It is December the 3rd. Hope you had the best Thanksgiving possible, even though this year's was probably radically different. Now, with the holidays, schedules are a bit wonky. I know how it is. My podcast playlist is getting kind of backed up. So a reminder, if you missed it, last week's guest was none other than Jackson Galaxy. You can check that out wherever you are listening to this podcast. You can also find all of the episodes on our website, bestfriends.org podcast. Our email is podcast at bestfriends.org. If you've got feedback, good or bad, ideas for guests or topics, maybe you, your organization, you're doing something that you know will help others be more effective at saving lives, let us help you spread the word. Anything we're doing to save lives shouldn't be a secret, right? So send us an email, podcast at bestfriends.org. The episode before Jackson Galaxy, so that would be number 40, was a discussion with Sloane Hawes. She's a researcher at the Institute for Human-Animal Connection at the University of Denver. We talked about a commentary paper they just had published that focuses on animal control, field services, and this is me paraphrasing it all here, but that prioritizing punitive approaches is bad. It's bad for pets, it's bad for people, and that if we're driven by enforcing codes that punish pet owners, we can lose sight of what is important, the human-animal bond. And it goes beyond that. If there's an animal in need, there's very often a person in need as well. So how can we rethink the way we work with the public to provide services to help regardless of what the need may be? love for you to take the time to listen to that episode if you haven't. Again, that's episode 40. But as I've said before, it's not a prerequisite to listen to the Best Friends podcast chronologically, but it certainly is a good companion to today's discussion, which is talking about what support-based field services actually looks like in practice. So getting it from the research paper level down to the practical level, implementation. Ashley Anderson Much is a Senior Program Manager of Enforcement and Policy Reform with the Pets for Life Program at the Humane Society of the United States. Her role involves working with animal services departments across the country to figure out how they can stop punishing pet owners and start helping them. Uh, my background in animal welfare began back in 2008. I was a humane law enforcement officer in Philadelphia. So I worked in the city of Philadelphia and in several counties in the state. Here, it's a little bit different of a structure than in many cities. We're sworn in fully as a police officer. Um, and so they pretty much outfitted us as SWAT officers. Full police powers. We carried a Glock a nine millimeter bulletproof vest, all of the trainings in self-defense and uh, batons and everything like that. So um, I came from a very heavy enforcement background. By 2012, I made the shift kind of through my own evolution in animal welfare to working with the Pets for Life team. Um, I managed the program in Philadelphia. And then a couple of years after that, I moved to more of a national level with the program to mentor and train groups and now specifically focus on helping enforcement teams with organizations we work with 
create uh, more supportive practices. And some people, Ashley, might know you from your background in TV. Oh, you had to bring that up. Young back then, so young. Oh, you know, Animal Planet, Animal Cops. It was a good time. It was it was interesting. It was uh, a good experience to have. But, you know, I I think throughout that entire process, it kind of made me reflect a bit on the work that I was doing um, and the impact I was making in my own community right there. I was living in Philadelphia. I live just in the suburbs now. But I realized maybe towards the end of that career, I could change things a little bit and and do a little bit more for the community instead of taking that super punitive approach. So the way you describe that time, your position, I mean, you were, for all intents and purposes, like a full law enforcement officer. Yeah. That's intense. And I know it's bad to assume, but I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that your views have since changed. But at the time, did you enjoy that? Putting on all the SWAT gear and, and carrying that sidearm? So I would say, yeah, back then it was, it was kind of that rush. It was probably multifaceted. I was young. Uh, my degree is in criminal justice, you know, immediately was hired from college for this position that I thought was a dream position. Um, just a, uh, just kind of a, a way that I could help others, or I thought that I was going to help others save animals with that rescue mentality and just kind of flourish from there. So for me, it was fun back then. But like I said, I think as time went on with many people that work in animal welfare, it kind of starts to weigh on you either doing the same thing day after day and feeling like, where is the impact? Where am I making this difference? versus, you know, how do I move forward and continue with this position to grow and really change, change the face of, of animal welfare? You said over time you grew wary of it, but was there one case that you can think of that, you know, you just made you stop and say, you know, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah, there, there are a few, and I've gotten emotional over time talking about this, but the one that got me the most was, you know, I probably saw so many calls and complaints about lack of vet care, which is just a broad, vague term. And so during an investigation, I went and I met this pet, met this family. This dog had a large mammary mass, left untreated, now was starting to create problems, um, it had abscessed and, you know, kind of took a turn for the worse there. The dog was probably 12 years old. They had no proof of vet care. So under the law, I could do what I needed to do. So I ended up giving them two options, which are not really options, uh, you know, when it comes down to it of either you can surrender the dog to me or I can come back with a search warrant, have someone sit on your house and just take the dog and then press charges. At that point, I had the dog surrendered to me and I'm writing up um, a surrender form and I have this little girl hanging on the dog's neck, just crying. They're telling me how much they love this pet. They've had this pet since it was a puppy. They couldn't afford to get it removed, but the dog seemed okay. I had my blinders on and I took the dog back to the shelter after it was surrendered. And I checked two days later and it was euthanized for space. So that really was a turning point for me to stop and say, what am I doing exactly? Why Why is this seen as something that I should receive praise for when I really just 
broke up a family, didn't understand, um, maybe they didn't have access to care for some reason. And now the impact that I've probably left on that family or that little girl still, it really does haunt me still today. I have a tremendous amount of respect for you and every field services officer. It, it's just not something I could do any kind of frontline work for that matter. Animal care work is just not for me. I've lived a very privileged animal welfare life. And <laughs> as you can tell, that is continuing. But when I hear those stories, not only am I just blown away by them in general, it, I mean, like in this case, I'm also blown away that you're still doing this work. Yeah. You know, it was kind of, um, I, I kept going, I kept waiting. I was like, well, maybe in the next time I do something, it's going to be, it's going to feel better to me. You know, and I, I recall one time where I kind of snuck this little Yorkie in that belonged to an older woman who I met again, lack of vet care had almost embedded nails, but I snuck it in, got the nails trimmed and, and brought the dog right back, you know, and that felt great. But at the same time, I know that that could have ended up being the same exact ending that I had with that previous person that I, I investigated. So when I talked to Sloan about this issue, one thing she said that stuck out to me was this idea of efficacy. So if our goal is to, you know, reduce and, you know, maybe someday end animal cruelty, we haven't done that. You know, maybe we're reducing the number of incidents, maybe we're better at responding and managing, but it's almost like we're you know, whatever sort of idiom you want to use, we're throwing good money after bad or doing the same thing and expecting different results. Sure. Is that something you would agree with? And what are the things that you are seeing out there as you work in communities across the country? What are you seeing out there that is better? Yeah. So loaded question, but yes, I, I agree um, with Sloan. I agree with the idea that, yes, of course, everybody wants to end cruelty or, or suffering for any any human, any animal, or anything going on in this world. But I think it's really stopping to take a look at the system, which we're, we're doing more so now than we ever have in the past in animal welfare. And I think it's important because when I look at enforcement and what I was doing, I realized that it came down to just this simple idea of, am I criminalizing poverty? Is somebody now on my radar for being poor in a way that I'm going to impact their lives forever? You know, we're working in a system that ends up handing out these financial penalties and criminal penalties to pet owners who can't afford basic needs. And when they can't afford basic needs, it's typically an access to care issue. But then we just turn around and we say, well, we have a complaint. Here we are. Uh, here's what you have to fix. Most of the time, people that I ran into would say, okay, I'll do it. I want to keep my pet. How do I do this? I can't afford this, or I don't know where to get this. And most of the time, the answer has been, uh, well, you have to figure it out. Really not my problem. Here's your warning. See you in two weeks. If it's not fixed, then we have a problem. So that's kind of the old way. Um, and I think what I'm seeing now, what I'm definitely seeing now is just, A, the conversation has started. It started years ago. But I think implementation has been a difficult process for many organizations, whether it's just philosophically or the whole culture of an organization, and then letting that bleed into all of the other departments and then finding some sort of way to come together because there are a lot of people that have a difficult time with change in general. But I'm seeing 
overall organizational shifts of how can we make more of a positive impact in our community to all pet owners, not creating this narrative around if you can't afford it, you shouldn't have it. Now we're talking about how to keep pets in the home, keep them out of shelters, create access and resources, reassessing the impact of work, reinvesting some of the operating budget that maybe was not making a larger impact in organizations. I'm seeing a lot of groups with the support-based approach really coming together and seeing that the intake process is a little bit better now and um, how the clinic is working is better now and how everybody is working together in the organization just seems to be a bit more productive um, and positive. The other piece I'm seeing a change in is, is language, how we're talking about certain things when it comes to animal cruelty or when we talk about punishment or support. What I've seen over time is that this, it's kind of like testing the water. A lot of people want to just dip that big toe in, give a little bit of support, see how that feels, um, which is fine, which I think is, is the best way that everybody should approach something that's new to them. Um, and then seeing that nothing negative is coming out of that change and then kind of expanding on that and then continuing to do that. So it's just been this process that I've watched over time with several organizations, but it starts with one officer, one person that they go out to do a call on and one form of support. And then that has just expanded into larger programs or uh, reinvesting of funds to make sure that all of these departments can work together to keep pets in the home. Yeah, it is a massive cultural change. And I don't know that we can overstate that. I was thinking about this and you know what it takes, what it would take. And it made me just think of communities that have achieved no kill. A, a lot of times it's really new leadership that drives that and makes it happen. So here comes this new leader, executive director, shelter director, and this is the new direction, everybody. Are you on board or are you not? Yeah. We could say that, but obviously it's easier said than done. And I don't care where you are or what you do, whether you work in the field or not, there's always a gym. Sorry to all gyms, but it's the first name that popped into my head. (laughs) You know, Jim's been doing this for 20 years and Jim's very stuck in his ways. Yep. Even moving the microwave in the break room can be like this huge point of contention for the gyms of the world. Yeah. So we can sit here all we want and talk about this and, uh, but implementing changes, I think, you know, it's easier said than done. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I have met many gyms in my uh, travels and, and during presentations and, Um, You know, I'll say I've definitely even had some confrontations from gyms and it's unfortunate. I mean, undoubtedly, there's going to be turnover. There's going to be change or there's going to be resistance. Most of the time, if there is an individual that may have a problem with evolving and looking at other options, you know, it, it will either it either will make or break them in the end. We end up seeing some people that sit there and then the job is just kind of mundane and day in and day out, they kind of do some of the lesser punitive calls, but they're still doing enforcement. And then the rest of the team is moving towards more supportive approaches. Everybody's kind of working together. There's multiple trainings or continued conversations or sharing of stories. You know, there's really no right or wrong way 
to do it. And I, I think I can understand why it may be difficult for somebody to make that change. In animal welfare, I think this field tends to define who you are a lot. And if you've been doing something like animal enforcement for a very long time, that certainly can define who you are and, and why you wake up every day. So it's, it's more so just having a lot of patience and having the understanding that, you know, if people are not going to be on board with this, that regardless of that, this is where the organization is going. This is where we're taking it. And honestly, time will tell at the end. And I've seen it either people will jump on board at some point or they end up not being able to do it and they go find a position somewhere else. As we look at this more holistically, Ashley, and we commit to helping not just the pet, but the person, a lot of the challenges, it seems to me, this is essentially social work. So it's not as simple as you need pet food, we'll get you food. You need a fence, we'll build one. This is much more complex than that. And I think it's a lot to ask of an officer who may be in a community where budgets were slashed might not even really received adequate training to do the base level field services job, but, you know, let alone tackling these like complex social issues. Yeah. Yeah. That's a conversation that we've actually been having more recently. Um, kind of the next step, right? We see the culture shift. We talk about how to do a few more things that may be supportive in the field, but then when there's really that need, what's the next step? Um, and so we've been talking and just kind of brainstorming because I think this entire shift in animal welfare is a bunch of us coming together to brainstorm and say, how do we do this? How do we make sure that our practices are equitable, our policies are equitable, that we're understanding these communities that we're working in? We've taken some time to really work with groups and make sure that they partner with other human services organizations. So if it's a larger issue, we're not saying let's go support-based and now you have to carry the burden of everything, mental health issues, um, housing issues, everything like that. We're saying let's take some of the time, if we're not seeing a need for enforcement as much, to network, to partner, to have those contacts, and to create more of a collaboration in our direct city or area to make sure that we have somebody to go to when we run into that. So we can help support an animal uh, if it's referred to us from an agency. And then if we see somebody that may need help with mental health, then we can have that structure and have somebody to guide them to as well. It, everything is a work in progress, I think. I think that's part of taking a look and reassessing what do we see day to day as enforcement officers in animal welfare. It's not just a dog with a skin condition. It's this plus everything else behind the scenes. And when we take that time to reassess and then we take the time to reinvest the funds, we see some of those options may may help the work on the back end. So I, I know HSUS, you're working with Sloan and the IHAC team on this larger, longer term One Health model study, which is going to tell us so much I hate the term game changer, uh, but I do think it will be. Uh, I was thinking about that people, animals, environment, you know, one health concept. I'm a Michigander, so Flint came to mind. Genesee County, it's an amazing community for life-saving. Don't quote me. I'm pretty sure they're over 90% save rate. So, but if I say Flint, what comes to mind? 
well, that huge issue with the water, the lead, right? Sure. So here's an example of a community that the needs went far beyond animals. I mean, they needed clean water. And we've got communities that have schools that need fixing. What are we supposed to do? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think for anybody doing work in animal welfare, especially more so the direct care work or field services work, um, it's a challenge. It's it's definitely hard to just shut off one part of your brain that is feeling empathy for a situation and wants to fix everything and realize we're only able to go as far as helping with the pet. A lot of people need to really reflect on how impactful that can be. It, we can't fix the water in animal welfare. HSUS can't fix these larger systemic challenges. We can be a voice. Um, we can be thought leaders in these conversations, show the impact of support in our field or in the specific work that we're doing to help the cause. I think that that does a lot more than uh, people may realize. But deep down, I think those one-on-one -on -one connections that we're able to make with an officer or somebody at the door of somebody that's having an issue with their pet is really going to be more impactful to that individual than this. I don't want to say more, but in that moment, this is their family. And so if we can help in this one aspect and we can show empathy um, regarding other things that they may be going through and do some research on what it means to live in poverty um, and really how these communities came to be underserved or came to not have access to care, that's doing, again, more than I think people realize. In the moment, we have to just do what we are able to do with that person, with that pet, but with understanding everything else going on, it should really push us to want to provide support and, and help keep that family together, especially with everything else they may be going through. If there's one thing that I think we can all agree on, it's that we need better policing strategies, right? So mm -hmm. take the controversial word defund out of it, but we have to find a way to rebuild trust yeah. in every aspect of our communities yep. from the police side and the community side. But I think the fact we're even having these conversations, it just what a powerful and critical moment in, and I don't know, for lack of a better way of saying it, like powerful, critical moment in society. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's extremely important. This field is known for being divisive and, Basically, if you have money, you're worth it. If you don't have money, it's in some way you're a criminal or you don't deserve to have that companionship. Building trust in a community that has so much broken trust to no fault of their own um, is definitely something that takes time, but we have to do it. You know, this is the time where we're seeing a lot of organizations, this culture change, the shift, they're taking action to get out there, to share the information, to listen more than they speak, you know, not kind of go out there and say, well, I'm here to help you, but now you better take it. It's more so talk to me, let me understand your situation, let me understand what's going on here, you know, making promises we can keep, and then kind of hitting repeat on that, and showing up and following through. 
aside from animal welfare, it's just decades of mistrust in the community, of injustices in the communities, um, and even stemming back to why the communities look the way they do. There's a lot of work that animal welfare can do. I think a lot of people are showing that if we take the time to focus our efforts on rebuilding that relationship or building new relationships in communities, that it can be done. And we can kind of create a better world, not only for for animals, but for the humans as well. Everyone has to answer to someone. I have a boss, you have a boss. They expect output and measurement that is trackable. Yeah. And I think particularly for municipalities, we're talking about taxpayer money. So all of this is well and good to say we're going to help people in this more comprehensive way. But what are the key measurements, Ashley? Like, how are we tracking performance in this new system? Yeah, so we've worked with some really great groups. There's uh, one group in particular we've been working with that they've been not only just tracking some of the regular Pets for Life community outreach data to show some impact, um, but really showing over time the impact that this is having with their enforcement calls and the outcomes there. Um, one interesting thing, actually, just as a, a quick side note to that, is during COVID, once COVID hit, there were a lot of changes being made to how calls were being processed and, and served with the officers. So there was a lot of limits to public and, and animal safety needs. But in turn, this time really turned it into uh, no contact drop-offs of supplies because they didn't want to continue to take animals in. They didn't want to have a big, big influx. They didn't see any rise in animal control or, uh, sorry, animal cruelty complaints or any issues like that. More so, this became this trial period of this is what we have to do. Everything turns supportive because of COVID. It's really had a positive impact. When looking at certain pieces of data, um, I know that there are measurements of the number of households that have been supported or cases that have been closed that used to have recalls several times for maybe a dog at large or some similar instance. How many uh, spay neuter surgeries have been completed or other wellness services have been given to the community? And then overall impact with how many notices have been issued, warnings, citations, or information, and how has that overall impacted their intake and their live release rate and everything like that. And so I've seen some of those metrics just start to slowly trickle in, maybe after doing a, a couple of years of supportive enforcement work, but everything is pointing in the direction that this is making the impact that it should, with keeping pets in home. Uh, those financial penalties are are, are non-existent. They are not being paid regardless. And so we don't need to continue to have bench warrants set out and, and arrests being made, especially when it is because of this lack of access issue. Ashley, how would a community get started with this? Knowing, acknowledging that this is still quite bleeding edge stuff. Yeah. Do you have maybe some examples or even just advice to someone who says, yep, I'm into this, but now what? So when we're implementing this approach, first of all, it's it, you start with that conversation. I have not implemented an approach that has encompassed the entire enforcement team. 
Usually, if somebody is starting to look at support-based services through their officers, it's coming from um, a new community program that they have. They also house officers, and there's one or two officers interested in seeing how they can better support. In those instances, it really does come down to a, just a conversation. An officer is telling me about this one case that they had that they thought they could provide a doghouse instead and it would be better, but they don't know how to get the doghouse. From there, the conversation goes into how are we working together within our own organization? And then how are we splitting up those resources that we have or the donations? So it, you could start small with just saying these donations coming in, we used to 100% would go to our TNR program, whatever it may be. But instead, now separating that up a little bit and leaving some for the enforcement team to be able to just pick through and see, okay, well, this case needs a pair of clippers or something like that. And let's see if we have those. Okay, great. How is the outcome of that? It, it's really a, a very small, slow process. There are larger things that organizations can do, like looking at job descriptions, and um, if they have an opening for a new position, looking to make that into a community specialist position as opposed to an animal control position. What most people do get caught up on is that this is just some major change, and it's really the mindset of individual officers and then how all of those officers end up working together. I had a decision every day I could make, uh, you know, my call log would sit there with 15 I could get done in a day. Each one of those calls, I could have said, I can provide this dewormer, or I can provide a bag of food, or I can give a warning, know that they can't afford this service, come back, seize this pet, and then go through that whole process. So, you know, in the beginning, I think a lot of people have those resources available. I think there are donation piles. There are small things that enforcement teams can grab. Aside from that, getting departments to work together a little bit more closely either share information or share um, issues that they may be having with someone that came through the front desk or someone they met in the field, vice versa, and seeing what those different departments have available to them to help with each other. Well, can I pass your information along to this person and they're going to handle this for you? Um, so really working with what you have can take you a bit farther once you just start to dive in and ask and just start asking those questions. Beyond that, uh, we can talk about, you know, getting into larger marketing and development and communications and looking at foundations or grants that may be appropriate for supporting enforcement teams or these types of efforts. Having the Giving Tuesday ask be about keeping pets in the home and supporting our officers and, and helping them you know, out on the street, in the field. There are many different ways to go about it, but I think it really does start simply just at an individual officer level. And then if it grows from there with more need, then we talk about kind of that need to look for funding or, or support from other outside sources. This is overwhelming for me, and I'm just sitting here talking about it, but I think <laughs> that's the challenge for us, best friends, for you, uh, HSUS, American Pets Alive, all of these organizations across the country for us to work with communities, leaders in those communities to provide the right structure, I guess, at that level yeah. to make sure we are, it's not a great way to say it, but we're handholding. So we're bringing people along and not just those who are working in the field, the community side also, we need to communicate to them 
what we're doing and how we're doing it and their role, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think it's for us to be very cognizant of that. So, you know, people, communities, municipalities, field services, uh, staff aren't just throwing their hands up and saying, this is too hard. Screw it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's There are a lot of benefits, obviously, having connections. But again, that's when you're ready to take that larger leap into a, a differently funded enforcement department and really just changing the face of your organization and your um, animal control officers or humane officers. You have to take it bit by bit. This is something that it will never happen overnight for anybody, regardless of how much money you have as well, because it's more than just being able to go purchase a new fence or a dog house or some leashes or frontline, whatever it may be. It's really something that takes time to look back and reflect on why are we doing, why are we investigating this way? Why are we making high priority calls in this manner in this one specific zip code? Are we disproportionately patrolling for some reason? Are we disproportionately handing out citations for some reason? How, how is the narrative of how we're portraying these stories in our daily asks for money or on social media or how we're talking about people or snapping photos over the fence and showing, you know, this horrible situation that really somebody just needs help. There are so many layers to peel back in this conversation and in this change that if you're in the work, you're an officer, you're doing the field, then you look at that one dog that has that mammary mass that you have a decision to make and you weigh your options. Because I know as an enforcement officer in animal welfare, you in that organization have a lot more power than somebody else may have. That has been the one part of animal welfare organizations that is always put out there, always for the asks, you know, rescue and help us be the hero and find a new home for this pet. And so it's always been the face of, of animal welfare organizations. Changing that narrative into, hey, I'm in this position, but I want to start making an impact in this way because I can leave this dog with this family that they love very much. That story can then affect the person that's helping you with paperwork. And then that story can, from the paperwork, help somebody in adoptions. And, and it trickles down in that manner. I think philosophically, that's probably the biggest hurdle we have to overcome. More than money, more than finding where to get this supply. You do any ask for towels and then the shelter has 10,000 towels the next day. So I think that it's more so this philosophy and, and changing our mind about people that are poor and have pets and need help and not just saying, here's this poor guy with this pit bull. Let's take that dog away. I don't want to belabor the point, but I think the challenge ahead resources, time, you know, one huge aspect of this, the diversity, equity, and inclusion. James Evans, who I think you know him, right? Uh, yeah. His organization, CARE, they're doing amazing work helping organizations navigate through, you know, things like bias issues that we are going to have to get through at the individual and organizational level, but they're new. I mean, they're scaling up, but you know, there are really very few organizations like CARE that are able to engage with organizations that are hungry for this evolution. So we need more resources than we currently have access to. Yeah. So how, how do you think we maintain this momentum we have now and not just to make sure, you know, we're bringing the gyms with us, 
but how do we all personally continue to grow? Yeah. I mean, it's been a long time of just self-reflection, I think, for a lot of people. It's taken my work in a different direction, especially since the murder of George Floyd and, and Black Lives Matter and, you know, looking at the systemic challenges that really impact animal welfare and how I've been contributing to them. Um, you know, not... Not intentionally sometimes, but that's just how it was. That's how I was trained or that's how I was brought into the work. Um, And so reframing the way that I do my work and discussing topics to make more equitable policies and practices is not easy. And I think the training, the pieces that are coming along are extremely helpful in starting the conversation. But it's going to be a very long time of continuing to have these conversations and showing that how we have portrayed pet ownership is really not how it's ever been. It's been because of systemic racism and these challenges that we've created as a field. And so now we're trying to kind of reverse everything and say, you know, oh, let's do it this way. But at the same time, it's that internal conflict of, well, we kind of created that. It's this big tangled ball to unravel. In a way, it's everything has to kind of be done in a meticulous way, a very thoughtful way. We have to continue to learn as a field and learn as individuals to make sure that the changes we're making have a better impact for people and their pets, no matter how much money you have in your pocket or where you live. And just make sure that, you know, we are constantly doing this work with with a positive intention. Of course, I love everything we talk about on the podcast, but I have to say that this topic, it's not something I know a lot about, but it's really something I'm loving digging into. There are some communities that are moving forward on these approaches. Absolutely, you will be hearing about them in future episodes. The producers of the Best Friends Podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.